The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Donut Inside the Donut Hole edition. It's Wednesday, December 4th, 2019. On today's show, the hit movie Knives Out combines an old-timey whodunit with some newfangled politics. It's the latest from writer-director Ryan Johnson, he of Looper and The Last Jedi fame. And then the new HBO adaptation of the legendary comics graphic novel, whatever you want to call it, Watchmen, is also quite forward-thinking in its politics, having turned the venerable IP into a very contemporary racial allegory. We'll be joined for that segment by Slate alumnus and Times columnist Jamel Bowie. And finally, a titan of letters has died. We discuss the life and legacy of the great, I mean truly great, Clive James with the New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey. Shall we dig in? Knives Out is a cracking murder mystery from writer-director Ryan Johnson. It has all the venerable elements of an Agatha Christie, a BBC whodunit, or a game of Clue. There's a manor house, a deviously infighting family, a contested will, and an idiot savant detective with a funny accent. But it has mixed them into a very au courant allegory about race and class in the Trump era. An aging crime novelist, Harlan Thwombly, is that his name? Thwombly? Do I have it right? Thwombly. <laughs> Thwombly. <laughs> Thromby, okay, an aging crime novel. How dare you? But now I want a movie about someone named Thromby. <laughs> I kept thinking of Cy Twombly, and it got all mixed up in my mind. Anyways, an aging crime novelist, Harlan, with some last name, uh, played by Christopher Plummer, gathers his children to the family estate for his 85th birthday, only to be discovered dead the next morning, possibly by suicide. But famed detective Benoit Blanc, played with a hammy deliciousness by Daniel Craig, believes he may have been murdered. The all-star cast includes, yes, it's true, Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Chris Evans, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, and I think I'm missing at least a couple. But the story centers itself narratively and morally on Marta, Harlan's nurse, the daughter of an undocumented immigrant, and as we come to see, Harlan's one true ally and friend in the world. She's played beautifully by Anna de Armas. Let's listen to a clip. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in The New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. All right. Well, Dana, you're the film critic. Let me start with you. What'd you make of this movie? I found it absolutely delightful. Uh, I've been thinking about it ever since, and it's worn very well on me. I think my favorite thing about Knives Out, just in terms of the landscape of movies right now, particularly this blockbuster time of year, is that it feels original. I mean, even though even though it's clearly a send up of a very familiar genre, the Agatha Christie style who done it with the people gathered in a country house, it's not based on any particular piece of IP, no book, no previous movie, no previously existing characters. And it just is extremely well written, which we can get into. The, you know, there's sort of a stylized dialogue form that Ryan Johnson specializes in. In a way, the, the Johnson film that this most reminds me of is his debut feature, Brick. I don't know if either of you saw Brick, which is this kind of high school neo-noir starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And everybody in that movie speaks in this kind of very stylized noir Something that's sort of a throwback to 40s movies, except they're all high schoolers in Southern California in the present day. And this movie has a similar sort of out of time quality where there's there's almost a language that's been invented for it by um, by Johnson as the writer director. And I just thoroughly, thoroughly got into it. Also, we will we will try not to spoil it in this segment, but the twists are genuinely unexpected. And the way he structures the movie so that you continue to be surprised at moments that you don't expect to be surprised, you know, beats that aren't the normal beats of this kind of murder mystery is just very pleasing to watch it unroll. Uh, Julia, what uh, what about you? Yeah, my main feeling coming out of this movie was not really sensible, but I will share it. And it was basically, why aren't all movies this movie? <laughs> like, it was just so fun. Uh, and I realized that, uh, you know, I was like thinking about how 
the whodunit is kind of an out of fashion genre, like so much uh, IP has been resuscitated and so many types of things get made. And then I was like, well, we did all watch and talk about Murder on the Orient Express like a couple years ago, which had a similar like ham fisted performance by a big star. But like everybody knows the plot of Murder on the Orient Express, like the, the fundamental thing about whodunit. I mean, not everybody, but lots of people do. And so the notion of doing a classic whodunit where the answer isn't actually known and can't be known from having read some old musty book somewhere. It's just so fun. And you can't quite see the twists coming, in part because the whole thing is cast with just huge, equally wattaged stars in all of the roles. And so it is not possible to tell in the kind of law and order sense of like, oh, well, I recognize that face. So that person's probably the murderer. <laughs> like you, you, Anybody could be the murderer because they all are equally twinkly and enjoying being in this unusual for movie making in 2019 caper. I loved it. Steve, what about you? Oh, I, I adored this movie. I mean, um, so a couple things. One is, first of all, it's just a, it's a um, callback, self-conscious callback, Easter eggy callback to the movie Sleuth, which is uh, um, mostly forgotten, but was a big phenomenon back in the 1970s. Um, as to why all movies aren't like this, it's just too risky to take material that isn't rooted come pre-rooted or pre-established in the audience's mind with familiar ip and throw it out there and then see if it succeeds or fails i mean they've just decided as a as a purely as a risk model uh, especially now that you're competing with streaming you can't really do it it's wonderful that this director thanks to his star wars work has the um uh built up chit pile to 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 do it um because exactly as dana as you were pointing out it's just when was the last time you walked into a movie knowing none of the characters, knowing you know nothing about the universe? And um, it's a conjuring act that has to take place over two hours from absolutely no expectations or pre-knowledge to a cast of characters, a world, a plot, a setup, and then to flow through the plot to a satisfying conclusion in two hours. It's, a, it's virtually a lost art form. The number of times we've seen a movie that successfully executes on that model it used to be what every movie was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, the number of times we talk about such movies really vanishingly small at this point. I saw the movie in Great Barrington in a very full movie theater on a Sunday because the snowstorms were coming. I knew I wasn't going to be able to see it on Monday or Tuesday. It was packed with the blue hair crew, these old ladies of Great Barrington, um, all of whom worship at the altar of Agatha Christie. I have not been in such a titillated audience in probably 20 or 30 years. It is a wonderful way to see a movie, not just on a large screen, but with a, a full house of strangers. For me, the humor landed in this movie. It is precise, very funny. There's a wonderful joke I'm sure you guys caught where someone is bragging about having seen Hamilton at the public. That's just, a, that, that to me, <laughs> that joke lands perfectly. I loved the performances. Everyone is just perfectly somewhere poised between you know ordinary naturalistic acting and uh overbaked ham i guess um love the direction of it the uh production design of it the aura of it i think its politics are very shrewd it's not just a racial allegory very funnily um and horribly the family keeps mistaking the country of origin of the nurse who's clearly the heroine of the piece uh one person says ecuador one says uruguay one says brazil but they all say it confidently you know as if they're patting themselves on the back for knowing that she's from one of these countries right. I love that joke too, and, and are we we never know, right? I mean, I don't think the viewer is ever it told where Martha is from. Um, no, we don't know. Um, we do know that her mother is an undocumented immigrant. That plays a very large part in the story. This is a very, very shrewd, very clever, very beautifully delivered movie. I have one tiny reservation, and believe me, it is tiny relative to the lovely product on hand. And that's that for me, the whodunit clunks a little bit. I actually don't find the whodunit part of it all that compelling. I never felt like my neck was snapping back and forth with the twists and the turns the way I remember it doing when you uh, saw Sleuth or, or one of the old Agatha Christie's. That is a tiny complaint against um uh the virtues of this movie it's a real throwback and it, it just executes beautifully well we can get into the the nature of the twists and turns i think in our spoiler segment because ryan johnson i mean what i'll just say here is that ryan johnson has spoken and written interestingly about the tension between the agatha christie style whodunit and then the hitchcock model of the suspense movie and hitchcock's sort of loathing of the whodunit as a as a stupid mechanism for playing with audience interest. And he has combined the two forms in a really interesting way here uh, by revealing pieces of the 
manner of death very early in the film. So the mysteries come elsewhere. Um, but one thing I will also say, I mean, it is true that original films have, are still being made. Like we, we make this lament about original IP frequently and, you know, it's not like Gone with the Wind. Uh, wasn't based on an original property or, or Wizard of Oz. Like, obviously, people have been adapting things for a long time. But I do think, in general, when Hollywood veers from IP right now, it's frequently in horror. Like, low-budget horror has become a really exciting, inventive space. And we end up talking about movies like Midsommar because it's a genre in which you can get big audiences to the theater and talented young directors can do something interesting on Hollywood's version of a dime and, or you get like serious awards movies. You get like the, the moonlights of the world, which are wonderful and great. The thing that's felt so striking about this movie is that it is original, but fundamentally designed to be a cream puff entertainment. Um, like it is really all about just giving you a good time in your seat at the movie theater, whether in Great Barrington or anywhere else. And then because it is, in fact, doing something novel and smart by setting a whodunit in the present day and by looking at the kind of class and political tensions and gender tensions and all the rest uh, of modern life, it's sort of a guilt-free cream puff because you're like, oh, well, that was smart and about Trump. I mean, it's, I'm not undermining, I don't mean to undermine the fact that it is sort of making interesting points about class and race and wealth and inequality and all the things that it is, but it, those are sort of by the by rather than the thrust of the thing. And that's what felt so novel to me, like to have so much craft and sort of Hollywood risk put towards just nope, we're going to make something and it's going to be good and you're going to come see it and it's going to be fun. Like, it, it's just like, oh, this they used to do this all the time. Yeah, it has a, a tremendous confidence. I think that was what I was trying to get at by saying that the originality was 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 what got me. It's just that it, whatever weird thing it's trying to do, this movie has a very masterful hand and confidence about trying to go about doing it. Yes, like even the Benoit Blanc accent. So you hear a little bit in that clip we played of Daniel Craig's just like very weird Tennessee by way of Britain or whatever the hell accent it is that he has. And you, as you first hear it in the film, you're like, is this going to work? Like, huh? Okay. And then th just a few characters make knowing jokes about it to the point where you feel like the movie is in on whatever it is that Daniel Craig is doing with that accent. And you're like, okay, I buy it. That's how he talks. Great. Exactly. I mean, there's these elements that you guys have referenced that are are very current, that are social satire. There's a young character who's a who's basically a right wing internet troll. There's somebody who runs a goop style cosmetics lifestyle co company. So there's all this social satire poked in there. But there's also just pure silliness, like the invention of this Benoit Blanc character who seems to be out of time and could easily be from the Hercule Poirot era or from a Warner Brothers cartoon. In fact, he's called Foghorn Leghorn at one point by one of the characters. And I think part of that energy, that confidence comes from the the fact that this movie is a true ensemble piece. There's no one real star. There's no one real protagonist. And the cast themselves, it's like if there was an Oscar for ensemble cast, which there isn't, it, it would go to a movie like this or it should go to a movie like there this. There is There's a SAG award for it. Maybe that's, it'll that's get the true. SAG award. That's true. And there are various critics groups that give ensemble awards as well. So maybe this will get recognized for that. But to me, an ensemble cast award is not about individual stars all doing a good job. It's about everyone feeling like a company, a performing company, which is how these actors seem together. And I think some of that may have to do with the production process. Apparently, this movie was put together very fast in between, you know, other commitments, probably Star Wars commitments that Ryan Johnson had. And uh, and they found the location, this beautiful Massachusetts Victorian-style mansion that, that it's all filmed in. And they just called everybody and got them there as quickly as they possibly could. And they didn't have trailers. And they all just hung out at that big house all day in between takes. And I've seen several interviews with the cast and, and crew where they just said that this was a unique experience of the actors really getting to know each other and getting to rehearse and play off each other. And I think that energy really comes through in the feeling that the ensemble gives off. Uh, one thing I'd say about the movie's politics that I thought was um, original and, and somewhat thought out was it's really an argument for a hundred percent inheritance tax i mean this is this is the whole drama of the movie centers around a legacy of who's going to inherit what it's more than just a allegory about how we ought to treat immigrant white america ought to treat immigrants better it's really about who deserves what and why and and who earns what and why and it's it's shrewd about those it's politics are 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 not 
Um, they're woven beautifully into a into a completely entertaining, but they're deep in their own kind of sly way. I thought. Yeah, I mean Jamie Lee Curtis, who's so I don't know, just sort of like lovable as a screen presence. I think with her uh, steely strength and twinkle is essentially playing Trump. You know, she's like a a real estate person who sees her career as self-made, but, um, you know, got a big loan from her wealthy dad. And that's how she built, quote unquote, built her business. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, it's just the movie is very, very clear about this. It's it's there's a pathology among white America about um, self-making and needing to believe yourself made in the face of the evidence that you're not. The irony being that it's only Marta, the immigrant who's coming here pretty much with nothing, who can make any claim to self-making. The movie's very smart about this, I thought. Um, anyway, it's a cool movie. It's Knives Out. Check it out. Uh, I hope you all see it and tell us what you thought. And we're not quite done because this is a tough movie to talk about without spoiling. It's a whodunit. It's the very worst kind of movie to spoil, but uh, so we'll save that for the plus segment. Uh, before we go any further, Dana, I'm sure that we've got some business. What, uh, what's up? Our business today is two things. To tell you that in Slate Plus, we will be talking about the spoilery parts of Knives Out, something that we often do with Plus when we're talking about as twisty a mystery as Knives Out. So anything that we put into our discussion that is too spoilerific to include in the main show, you'll be able to hear in Slate Plus. If you want to hear segments like the Slate Plus segment and get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for our membership program, Slate Plus, which helps to cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate podcasts for just $35 for your first year. If you want to join Slate Plus and help support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join today. The only other piece of business is to tell you that our annual call-in show is coming up. This is our equivalent of the conundrum show that the Political Gab Fest does. Our version is not just that you give us conundrums to wrestle with on the air, but that you actually ask us anything you want in the world. It's a wide-open call-in show with uh, questions from listeners about any cultural topic or outside-of-culture topic that you'd be interested to hear us discuss. And we choose from all of those contributions and just record a loosey-goosey pre-holiday show where we talk about life. If you want to ask us a question for that show, you can call in at 973-826-0318. Again, for our annual call-in episode, 973-826-0318. Ask us a question. All right, Steve, what's next? Watchmen was a 1980s-era comic book that, while absolutely legendary in itself, has never quite made the transition comfortably to the screen. That, critics uh, appear to agree, has changed with the new HBO series, of the same name, as adapted and expanded by Damon Lindelof, best known, I think, as the creator and showrunner of Lost. This Watchmen takes place within the universe of the original material, but 30 or so years in the future, and in a counterfactual Tulsa, Oklahoma. I should say it's a wonderfully disoriented, plunked down in the middle ethic with, with which this has been made. One uh, should not feel ashamed for being disoriented amidst its uh, many counterfactual, uh, you know, deep universe um, uh, uh, features. Um, and as I understand it, in this counterfactual Tulsa, Oklahoma, Robert Redford is president, I believe, um, and definitely white supremacists have formed a terrorist cell group, the 7th Cavalry, with which to fight the police. Why don't we listen to a clip and then we'll start piecing it together? Also, let me, uh, let me add that Julia will not be joining us for the discussion discussion about Watchmen. It's a product of HBO where her husband works, so she will recuse herself. Caught carcass on the highway last night. Soon the accumulated black filth will be hosed away, and the streets of Tulsa will turn into extended gutters, overflowing with liberal tears. Soon all the whores and race traitors will shout, save us, and we will whisper, We are the 7th Cavalry. We are no one. We are everyone. We are invisible. And we will never compromise. Do not stand between us and our mission, or there will be more dead cops. There are so many deserving of retribution, and there is so little time. And that time is near. Tick, tock, 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 tick,
Oh, my, chilling. Well, we're joined by uh, Jamel Bowie, of course, the columnist for the um, New York Times. Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you wrote a column, a wonderful column about the show in which you, let me quote from it, you say, the original Watchmen uh, took place in the context of Ronald Reagan's America with its greed, militarism, and Cold War tensions. Uh, in this instance, the showrunner David Lindelof and his collaborators are working in today's context of racial violence and resurgent white nationalism. Uh, this is an incredible television show, Jamel. Uh, lead us through its virtues. <laughs> sure. I, I have to admit, when I um, saw the first episode, I, I don't know what I was expecting. I remember learning that there would be a Watchmen adaptation you know, last year or whenever it was announced. And my first thought being, I'm not sure how this is going to work out because the and you should have alluded to this, the trouble of the comic in the series is that its power isn't so much as a story in itself, but also as sort of a, a commentary both on the genre and then on the context, the real-life context in which the genre actually emerges. And so Watchmen, the original 12-issue miniseries, is groundbreaking as this kind of uh, – deconstructionist superhero tale that isn't just trying to, you know, do the look, what what, if, what would superheroes look like in the real world, but also trying to actually directly comment on the real world through the medium of superheroes. And both adaptations and attempted prequels and sequels over the last 15 years or so haven't really been able to capture that. The Zack Snyder uh, film from 2009 which is a straightforward attempt to adapt the original source material, I think falls flat because it's very literal. It kind of misses all of the subtext and uh, commentary. There was a uh, before Watchmen prequel series, which attempts to provide some background, some context or whatever for the original, the, some of the characters in the series. And that likewise falls into that, I think, common nerd geek trap of wanting so much explanation of what came before, but really missing the point of the series. So coming into this HBO Watchmen, I was just skeptical that they would be able to capture this very difficult thing, this thing that uh, really is context dependent. Like, I always tell people who want to watch, read the original series that they should actually spend time reading comic books from the era before they read Watchmen, um, and then also read like some headlines from the era too. But this show manages to do that. Uh, Little Off has called the show a remix um, of the original series, and I think that that word is quite right in that it is kind of taking the bones of that series, not just in terms of plot or story, but in what it's trying to do thematically, and applying that to um, contemporary concerns. And I don't know, I, I think it's I think it's brilliant. I mean, um, I don't think I would have ever expected to uh, watch a show, a superhero show at that, that kind of is dealing directly with legacies of racial violence, that's uh, trying to untangle the tangled web of law and order and racism and all of these things. So um, I, I have found it really um, remarkable thus far. Jamel, I'm curious. For me, for for a comic book-based property, I went into this knowing much more than I usually do because before Zack Snyder's movie came out back in 2009, I mean, if, if, a, if an adaptation comes out of a book that was truly kind of a seminal book in its field that everybody who goes to see the movie is likely to know about, I try to read the book. And so I did that with this. I read, you know, the, the entire series bundled together by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons reviewed the movie. So went into this HBO series thinking, wow, for once, I've actually boned up on this comic book <laughs> history, and I'm going to know what's going on. I'm now four episodes into this Watchmen, and I have no idea what's going on. I find, as you say, the, the thematic material that it's exploring really intriguing. Regina King is a great protagonist as the Sister Knight. Is that the name of her, her hero? That's character? right. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, and there's also a great uh, Tim Blake Nelson character. What's his, he's the mirror guy as he's as he's called by Gene Smart, but he's actually um, he's Looking Glass. Looking Glass, right? So these these characters are are fascinating. Also, there's this strange uh, world that Jeremy Irons seems to exist in separately from everyone else as this kind of. Um, I don't know, intergalactic villain who has a trebuchet with which he's trying to reach another dimension. There's interesting craziness in every single episode. But four hours in, 
I have no idea how they're all going to fit together. I don't know what's going to happen with each next episode because they each seem to focus on a different character. I mean, this is definitely a deep mythology kind of show, maybe in in some ways related to to what Lost was, right? Something that depends not necessarily on you knowing the backgrounds, because I sort of did in this case and I still don't get it, but on you having a lot of patience for something to emerge from this morass of, you know, of um, conflicting stories and characters and details. And so I'm wondering two things. How would you advise people like me who find themselves intrigued but at sea in this in this universe and how might we orient ourselves in a useful way and secondly when you say that you think Lindelof grasps in some way um, the the thematic essence of the the original Alan Moore Dave Gibbons comic what would you say that essence is if you had to say sort of what are the questions that they framed that he's taking in a different direction what are they and how is he taking them in a different direction yeah, I think I'll answer that question first, and then go to the how how to watch this series. Um, so I wrote I wrote a column about the sixth episode of the of the show, and I um, wrote that the graphic novel series you can think of as an extended answer to a set of questions about the superhero as an idea and an ideal. Uh, those questions are: What kind of society produces mass costume vigilantes? What kind of person puts on the mask to begin with? How do people, ordinary and extraordinary, react in the face of the incomprehensible, from total annihilation to the otherworldly? And I think um, if those are sort of like the criti- the central questions of, or some of the central questions of Morgan Gibbons's Watchmen, then I think Lindelof, especially as you as you move forward in the series, and this kind of gets to how to watch this. Um, begins to take all those questions on directly and then places it in a world where, you know, the the opening scene of the series is a dramatization of the 1921 Tulsa massacre where um, a a mob of whites burned down the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, which which was an historic African-American area um, known as the Black Wall Street Force Prosperity. So the inciting in the or the the opening incident of the show is this episode of dramatic uh, racial violence, and the series uh, seems to be tying the reality of that kind of violence to the existence of costume heroes, and that's sort of where the twist happens, sort of bringing the the Moore and Gibbons framework and using it to analyze not militarism or sort of Cold War paranoia, but analyzing racial trauma. <laughs> so I, here's the problem. I don't want to spoil anything. Like, I, I normally am very indifferent to uh, spoilers, but this is a case where I think the revelation is so important um, and really does kind of bring, it brings the entire series into clear view once you see it. So I would just say, if you're watching this and you're on episode four and you're kind of, I don't know what's happening to treat it almost as a very long movie, right? So the first three episodes, I think you can watch as like a self-contained prologue, setting up the world, setting up key characters, so on and so forth. And this next chunk of episodes, the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth hour, I think are the ones that really uh, fully ground you and point you in the direction of where the series is going. And the sixth episode in particular is kind of the the hinge point. Like you watch that and you're like, okay, I get what this show is trying to do. Jamel, as someone who, you know, hosts a culture podcast and therefore has to consume a lot of superhero material, the idea of being thrown into a universe, being somewhat disoriented within it, having it be filled with arcana and deep backstories, you know, I've gotten used to it over the years, but I wouldn't say it's exactly my thing. There's This, this show is doing it, but in, in a kind of categorically different way. It doesn't feel driven by nerd affiliations uh but really by a kind of trenchancy and 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 moral precision in a way uh and a, uh, and and it's obviously a document of the Trump era the way as you say the old one was was of the Reagan era and so even though I'm completely disoriented and this is all sort of an appeal to listeners of our show who haven't seen it or have watched a little bit and find themselves a little lost in it I love the fact that what keeps me hooked within its recondite weirdness is its obvious moral relevancy. Uh, and I, I I just think that that's an extraordinary thing, you know, kind of to pull off. I mean, honestly, the thing that kept me, that hooked me from the beginning was this dramatization of the Tulsa massacre. It was genuinely upsetting to watch it. And I there's a there's a Watchmen podcast um, with um, Craig Mason and uh, Lindelof where they kind of talk through the episodes in chunks. 
And uh, Lindelof mentions reading a book called The Burning, which is about the Tulsa Massacre, and I've read that book as well. And when I learned that he had read the book, it made a lot of sense to me the way that scene was staged and shot, because it very much is directly from that book. It's more or less a dramatization of an anecdote in that book. I was sort of taken aback from by uh, the dramatization, how real and disturbing it felt, and that kind of got me hooked to begin with. If a show is going to start with this, then what is it going to do? Like, it's obviously driving towards something that is going to be interesting. Maybe it won't be fulfilling. Maybe it won't fulfill its promise, but it will be something worth, I think, unspooling. And I think for me, trying to tease out, at least up until the sixth episode, trying to tease out what the show was going for is the thing that was most compelling to me. So... You know, the fact that from the start, we know that in Tulsa, the cops were masked and they're fighting like a white supremacist terrorist group that also wears masks uh, and that the protagonist, uh, Regina King's character, is an African-American cop. I mean, it sort of raises questions. Are we, are we what kind of equivalences are we drawing? Are we putting law enforcement on the side of anti-racists, which seems sort of weird? The white supremacists in the show seem to be kind of like low-income poor whites, and they're resentful over reparations. Is there something there happening? And it all kind of gets answered and explained. Um, but trying to figure it out for me is, uh, you know, that's that that's compelling for me as like a consumer of the comic books and as a consumer of comics in general. All right. Well, the show is Watchmen. It's on HBO. You should check it out. We would love to hear what you think of it. Jamel, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It is always a great, great pleasure to have you on. Always happy to. Well, Clive James is, uh, I think it's fair to say, it was a giant of uh, of letters. Um, and uh, Adam Gopnik, the staff writer for The New Yorker, has written a beautiful eulogy to Clive, who uh, died this past week. Um, Adam, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be back with you, Steve. How are you all? We're good. I'm in easy yet because all I do is sit here in my little study and and write all day. Uh, Adam, I think diving right in, it would be easy to know only one piece of the Leviathan that was Clive James. Um, and what I loved about your piece right from the beginning is you tried to get at the totality of this man's life and achievement in a way. He was something different on each continent that he enacted part of this remarkable biography. Um, uh Talk a little bit about that, what it was to be from Australia, to make a new reputation for yourself in England on television in a different medium, and then come to America. Absolutely. Yeah. As you say, Steve, the remarkable thing about him is that he came from Australia and was very Australian in God knows in speech. And certainly, if there's such a thing as an Australian temperament, he had it. There was a a kind of uh, uh, an appetite for life and even a kind of... um, contagious maniness. You'll, you'll recall um, that when, when Clive was actually just out of hospital here with an extreme life-threatening case of phlebitis, um, I brought him down to dinner where you and Dana uh, got to spend time with him. And it was like being in a, my imagination of an Australian pub. He just had an unlimited appetite for um, cheer and conversation. Uh, none of that kind of Englishy um, hesitancy or inwardness or snobbiness. But he realized at a young age that he had to make his life in London. At that point in the late 1950s, uh, all um, ambitious Australians did that. Robert Hughes, who was a a college mate of his and a good friend throughout life, complicated, very complicated competitive friendship, uh, made the trip at the same time by boat. And uh, Clive wrote a wonderful book called Falling Towards England, just about his trying to make his way in London, uh, and finally did both as a critic, but even more as an entertainer. And it was a side of his accomplishment that was largely hidden to Americans. I remember visiting him once in Cambridge and being sort of stunned because I thought of him as this uh, matchless commentator on Montali and um, uh, and Tolstoy and Larkin, that he would be crowded like um, uh, Pat Sajak by fans who had been following him on television where he did very, for the most part, very non-highbrow kinds of stuff. He was famous for having introduced uh, Japanese game shows of a particularly um, uh, comically brutal kind to um, British audiences. 
And he would be crowded by them. He was actually quite funny about it because as people crowded around his table, he would mock grumble. Oh, yeah, a few minutes late, aren't you? You know, meaning that he had paid them off to come and show us Americans who he was. And that's what he was in, in Britain, a, a TV celebrity. Um, but in, um, in America, we knew him fundamentally. We knew him primarily as a writer, which was the best possible way to know him. He genuinely had a passion for reading of all kinds. You know, I haven't cleared off my desk yet since writing that um, uh, eulogy. Uh, and I've got a book of poems he wrote about Proust, a book of late poems, his collected television criticism, his famous book, Cultural Amnesia, which are short portraits of important European intellectuals of the 20th century and American ones. Um, he had a, a just a matchless appetite for the for the life of literature and for the life of and for the life of the screen life of images um and as i tried to say in that piece it, it was the appetite was hugely appealing but what made it remarkable was that he also had very authoritative judgment he was excellent at appraisal he was very rarely wrong about anything in the arts it's so true, Adam, and your piece gets at this beautifully. I mean, most of us are creatures of uh, sad sack dialectical compromises. Whatever our strength happens to be implies a corresponding weakness. And and you search and search and search through the life and work of Clive James for that dialectically opposite weakness against all his strengths to be comfortable in front of the camera, right? And and delicious in front of the camera to a wide audience to be capable of sitting in a room of your own and doing deep and wide-ranging reading, to be both uh, adept as a scholar, but also completely lucid and not only lucid in your prose, but boundlessly entertaining, arguably as delightful as any prose writer in English of the last 50 years. How could such a creature exist? Well, I think Clive himself would say he was blessed um, in lots of ways. One way he was blessed, and you know, I am hardly a, a Marxist social historian, but it, it was, he was blessed by the time he came of age. In, you know, it was, as the Marxists would say, no accident that Jonathan Miller died on the same day when actually a couple of days after Clive did, but the day that it was uh, announced. Jonathan Miller had a similar role. I prefer Clive's prose to Miller's, but they were very similar types. You know, uh, Renaissance man is a terrible term because what really distinguished the men of the Renaissance was the intensity of their effort more than its range. But that sense of feeling that everything was possible and accessible, that there was no contradiction between being a popular cabaret entertainer and one of Clive's um, too often overlooked accomplishments, one dear to my heart, is he was a terrific song lyricist um, with uh, composer Pete Atkin. Um, so you could be a popular cabaret entertainer, as Miller was, a matchless comedian in Beyond the Fringe, and then go on to have a serious career as a director of opera and indeed as a as a doctor. There were none as good to my mind as Clive, but there were a lot like Clive in his generation. Jonathan Miller, as I say, Alan Bennett, Michael Frayn, that model of crossing boundaries uh, was not uh, inaccessible to um, uh, a writer in Britain uh, of that of that time. Adam, one thing that you mentioned in your beautiful eulogy is that I wanted to touch on here is the amount of time that Clive James spent writing while he was sick, while he was in fact dying. And when you tell that story of us having gone out to that lovely dinner with him, I think that had to have been close to 10 years ago. And as you say, he'd already just undergone a major um, medical crisis, which I don't even remember when I think about that evening. That's how little he stressed it or thought about it, is that my memory of it, which immediately flooded back on hearing that he was gone, had nothing to do with him being ill and just out of the hospital. He was just way too vibrant. But you, one of the things that you say is that he had an unusually uh, overabundant late harvest, you call it, that he had this burst of late work during this decade or more that he knew that one of the chronic conditions he had would kill him. And I wonder if you could talk about that and especially how that stacks up with you know the way that, that late work often figures in an artist's life. Yes, he was terribly ill that night we had that memorable dinner. And I will add, because I'll say it, that he was, became a huge fan of Dana's writing and conversation at that moment and always followed her afterwards. Oh my God, that um, makes me so happy. It's just the simple truth. And, and that was a reflection of the excellence of what you do, but also of Clive's, as I say, endless appetite for, for the new, for discovering new people, new writers, new things. But uh, he had just jumped out of a hospital bed 24 hours before when we had that dinner. He had been admitted to the hospital with a terrible case of phlebitis where they had to rush him into uh, a hospital bed uh, when he thought he was in New York for a dinner party. Um, and he struggled with that. He had 
every kind of affliction in the last 10 years of his life. He had leukemia. He ended up, he died actually of a cancer of the, um, of the face. And yet he went back to writing. Um, and, you know, usually that kind of deathbed repentance is not supposed to work in the arts. You know, the, the moralistic tale we like to tell is if you waste your prime doing uh, Japanese game show anthologies, you're not going to be able to come back and write a translation of Dante or your own best poetry. But Clive did. Um, Clive used the um, isolation and the reality that he could no longer uh, do um, popular entertainment just to write. It's a wonderfully salubrious thing for those of us who worry about um, frittering away our energies to know that he could refocus them that powerfully. It was actually quite funny in a way that he was completely aware of because um, indeed, when we all had dinner together, he thought and his doctors thought he might have a year or two at most to go. And it ended up being 10 years. And of course, um, because people became aware of it, um, all kinds of, um, of praise and kudos poured out to him, particularly because he was writing in a highly elegiac way, uh, poems of repentance, poems, a beautiful poem called Japanese Maple that appeared in The New Yorker that was all about not expecting to live another uh, autumn to see another autumn well he did and he went right on and as he was well aware a certain kind of grumbling resentment everybody had poured out their hearts in his praise and he wasn't going anywhere and he said at one point that he felt like a character and you could imagine the restoration comedy right where you know mr well writing um has gathered all the praise that he had been uh they had been skipping and now everybody wanted him to move on or they wanted to repeal all that praise, right, which they'd given to him on the condition that he would shortly die. But Clive went right on um, for those uh, uh, through those ten years with that kind of um, sparkle and that and that sense of uh, of comedy. Um, Adam, one of the things I loved about uh, your remembrance of him was the particular line of his about Tolstoy that you cited, mm-hmm. which just was such a dazzling representation of the kind of mind that he had and the kind of thinking he was capable of. And I loved your focus on both his ability to be that precise and perceptive and also his commitment to explaining complicated and thorny ideas to a broad audience in his work on TV. But if you have your piece handy, would you mind just reading that line? I think it would be great for our listeners to hear. Um, Clive uh, could pass from wonderfully, just contagiously absurd writing about Star Trek or Mission Impossible, and then write something like this about an adaptation of War and Peace. Quote begins, dead ground is the territory you can't judge the extent of until you approach it. Seen from a distance, unseen. Almost uniquely among imagined countries, Tolstoy's psychological landscape is without dead ground. The entire vista of human experience is lit up with an equal, shadowless intensity so that separateness and clarity continue even to the horizon. This was in a, you know, a weekly column in the London Observer in, in 1974. But Steve, if I could just come back though for a second to something that you asked about that sort of was nagging at me a bit about, you know, how was it that Clive was able to get himself so fully expressed in so many ways without a, a dialectical opposite? There was, I think, a dialectical opposite, to use your term, in, in Clive's work. And it came from the fact that he was um, un, un self-censoring. You know, most of us are highly self-censoring, I think, as writers. You know, we read what we write and we imagine the effect it will have on other people, or we run it by our own prude, or we run it by our own progressive pieties or something. Clive didn't do that. Clive spun out his work with a remarkable absence of... Um, fear in one say with great courage but also unaware of its effect and he stumbled sometimes you know i mentioned in the eulogy that he wrote that infamous eulogy to princess diana which was published in the new yorker on the week of her death which um many people in america were startled by and many more in britain mocked because it seems so over the top in the scale of its grief and in the description of his relationship, his friendship with Princess Diana, which was transparently quite one-sided. He loved her and she used him. But that was part of his greatness, in fact. He didn't have that kind of crippling or paralyzing internal censor. He worked it out and he was willing to look foolish in public from time to time in order um, never to stop writing, in order to be unimpeded in that way. 
Um, and so if that's the, the kind of the dialectical opposite, if you like, was exactly that there, he wrote stuff that was sometimes foolish, but as I say in the piece, you know, someone who's, um, uh, has to be romantic about the wrong things in order to be romantic about the right things. And he was. Adam, where, so for listeners who are enticed by this conversation, where would you point them? What's a good place to start? Clive wrote more than 40 books, so there's a lot to read. I think um, sort of the, the good place to start is his big book, Cultural Amnesia, which was a bestseller and is um, a terrific, both it's an education in 20th century culture and also an education in its um, constant passing between high and low, between Michael Mann and Alfred Polgar. It's a wonderful book in that way. His uh, collected poems, if you have a taste of such thing, which I've just been reading my way through again, are terrific. His um, TV criticism is wonderful, hard to find in America, but you can find it, I think, on Amazon UK or whatever that is, called Visions After Midnight. Uh, the uh, memoirs, oddly, have never had as much life in America as they ought to have had, partly because they mix self-myth and truth, and that makes Americans uneasy. But if I had to pick one book out of all of uh, Clive's work, it would be the second volume of his memoirs, Falling Towards England, which is an absolutely um, amazingly funny and smart story about a, you know, a young man, an ambitious young man coming of age in a literary city, which for what little it's worth was very much a template for me when I wrote my own story of a young man coming of age in a literary city uh, at the Stranger's Gate. All of those things, I think, will show off uh, Clive's extraordinary uh, qualities. You know, he, he wrote once, if I was trying to sum Clive's work up once, I actually used it as an epigraph for a book 35 more than that years ago, 39 years ago. And that was that the work of criticism is always slow. It's a funny thing to say from a man who wrote so quickly, because what we're always trying to do is sort out categories and values, when in fact, it's simply a slow business of trying to uh, eliminate categories, high and low, TV against serious literature. Um, while still retaining values. And that work of uh, rejecting categories while respecting values was all the work that Clive did his life. Um, Adam, it is always such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for coming in. Joy to be with you all. Have me back. All right, now's the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, my endorsement this week is going to have to do with our conversation with Adam Gopnik about Clive James. I was trying to bring in maybe one Clive James poem or one Clive James essay to uh, to recommend. I know I've read one of his poems before on the podcast when we were in Melbourne, Australia, um, and I just couldn't decide. I spent so long diving and finding beautiful things I wanted to bring in, and they seemed too long to read or required too much context. And so I'm just going to endorse CliveJames.com. He has a really, really good website, which actually goes very well with some of the things we were discussing with Adam. I think he's a very modern poet, despite having reached octogenarian status and been an old writer for a long time. He is in some ways a very modern writer. He likes to write about YouTube and has poems about you know things that he, he read and found there. And his own website is just very well managed and has a large collection of his essays, poetry, books, videos of him talking. You sort of see all the sides of, of Clive James, the broadcaster, the essayist, the poet, the sort of public personality on the radio, etc. And uh, it's really fun to dive around in. I would be interested for people to take a look and get back to us with their favorite poems or essays that they find there. And I would I would tweet those out. But essentially, I would just send people to CliveJames.com, make a cup of tea and spend the afternoon there. Here, here. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I would like to endorse an exhibit by the photographer Tom Kiefer that's at the Skirball Center here in Los Angeles through March 8th. Uh, it's called El Sueño Americano, The American Dream. The photographer worked as a janitor at a border processing um, center in Arizona and retrieved a bunch of belongings that uh, migrants had with them when they were uh, seized at the border and and uh, then went through the customs process. And he takes these discarded items, lays them out in a very tidy, orderly fashion against very flat, orderly backgrounds. And um, Makita Easter, a writer for the LA Times, has a story up about this exhibition. Uh, and it includes a number of the photographs. And they're just incredibly striking heartbreaking the aesthetic is almost as she observes it almost looks like pop art like they're very orderly but then when you begin to examine the details of them there's one 
sort of long row of discarded toothbrushes um, in red, white, and blue that is just a wrenching thing to, to look at and contemplate. Um, so I would recommend the article by Makita Easter on our website. And if you are in Los Angeles, uh, that you go to the Skirball Center before March and check out these photographs by Tom Kiefer. Excellent. Um, okay, so I was at a restaurant the other night, and uh, the person I was with seemed to know what she was doing, and she ordered um, a, I'm going to mispronounce it, so I'll spell it, B-O-U-R-G-U-E-I-L wine, a Bourgoy wine, and not only a Bourgoy, but a Saint-Nicolas Saint de Bourgoy wine. And in lieu of the 100% uh, tariff now being threatened against French wines by that person who was president, uh, I'd love our listeners to talk to me about this. Apparently what it is is an amazing amount of character bang for the buck. Um, it was, a, I thought, a brilliant wine. It's a Loire uh, Cab Franc um, with a ton of just depth and earthiness and, um, and richness without being, you know, whatever jammy or blah, 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 blah. I'm just throwing out stupid wine words, but um, <laughs> I just thought it was, I thought it was a lovely wine, like a, a um, and uh, I'd love to know more about them. And if we have a listener who's, uh, who's into that kind of thing, uh, shoot me an email and tell me why you love them. Uh, and then um, I was, uh, we've been snowbound for a couple of days here in Ghent, New York. My daughter uh, had a kind of rolling double sleepover with two of her 13 year old friends. And we began making a playlist of songs with candy in the title spanning the generations <laughs> it turns out you discover a lot of really fun songs there's an amazing song by the birds that i'd never heard or don't remember having heard called candy and then it, it reminded me of a classic uh, dana i'm wondering if you remember the song um candy by uh it's a duet a wonderful 1990 duet between iggy pop and kate pearson of the b-52s no i don't know it Oh, that song, it's so, it deserves to be. So it's such a, it's like Iggy, you know, trying to get a nest egg or something. I mean, it's just such, it's pop rock. Uh, and Kate Pearson on it is just her Kate Pearson, you know, wonderful best. And it's just one of those songs that I guess at the time I probably turned it up when it came on the radio and then forgot ever existed. But it's really great. And I hope we go out on, on it. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. As always. Rainy afternoon, 1990. In a big city. Jeez, it's been 20 years. Candy. You were so fine. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Then you can email us it, and I will say it almost every time. We love the emails that we're getting. I just got one a few hours ago about visiting the legendary pie stand. Uh, we love feedback from our listeners. Go ahead and email us at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. You can interact with us, some of us and not others there. Uh, our producer is Katya Komkova. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. I love you so. Damn it.